0: To be or not to be, that is the question.
1: Rather remarkably, this is a reconstruction of how Hamlet's famous speech may have been spoken by some actors on the 18th century stage in London. To our ears, it sounds as close
0: to singing as it does to speaking. Whether it is nobler in the mind, to suffer the stings and arrows. To be or not to be
1: has a rich cultural history. Another example. In 1876, at the Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition, Alexander Graham Bell gave the first public demonstration of his newly invented telephone by reciting to be or not to be, that is the question, down the line. Listening at the other end was the Emperor of Brazil. Bell went on to record the speech on a wax cylinder, one of the earliest ever recordings of the human voice.
2: In
3: 1906,
1: Herbert Beerbohm Tree recorded it too.
3: To be or not to be, that is the question.
1: Although some critics thought he wasn't much good as Hamlet. In the 400 years since it was first spoken on stage, Hamlet's soliloquy has been used, abused and misused. It's been enlisted by empire builders and nationalists to reinforce the myth of British superiority, of Britannia ruling the waves. But as we'll find out in this podcast series, there's another side to the story. With its theme of taking up arms against injustice, it's also been a rallying cry and an inspiration in the fight for human rights, personal freedom and the emancipation of the marginalised and the oppressed. In this episode, we're going to start by looking at how the speech sounded in the past, and uncover the remarkable story of a battle between the people and the elite over who gets access to Shakespeare. So let's start around the year 1600, as Richard Burbage steps out on stage to become the first actor to play Hamlet. Drawing on clues such as rhyme schemes and pronunciation guides of the period, scholars have reconstructed how he might have sounded. Something like this.
4: To bear or not to bear, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a say of troubles, and by opposing end them. You want me to keep going? (laughs) To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to
1: dream? (laughs) This is Ben Crystal who's played the role of Hamlet in original pronunciation. When it was first tried on stage at the modern-day Globe Theatre, it was feared the audience would be put off. But in fact, the opposite was true. Many people felt it was more accessible.
4: I think a lot of people, when they hear the the words original pronunciation, have a a nightmare that they're going to hear their high school teacher doing a bad impression of Chaucer or something, you know, which, of course, is 200 years before, but still there's that sort of... uh, I'm not going to understand it. It's going to be, it's going to make that which already feels distant even more distant. The wonder is that the converse is true. That instead of it being spoken by the accent of the two percent, uh, the accent of received pronunciation of the BBC of the Queen's English, um, that often these people feeling left out, I suppose, because so so few other people have share in that sound. Audience members seem to say. That sounds a little bit like where I come from. They, 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 they tune into the familiarity.
3: For who would bear the whips and scorns of time? The presser's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay.
1: This is Ben's father, renowned linguist David Crystal, who did much of the work reconstructing original pronunciation. He found it unleashed an unexpected
3: vitality and energy in performance. And actors tell me this all the time. You know, they they feel it's a more earthy sound. They feel more grounded in it and so on. Certain lines jump out at you. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. Thus conscience does make cords of us all. Now, you know, a word like all for all, that can be so dramatic at times.
1: Actors have found that Shakespeare's plays run quicker in the original accent due to the shorter vowels, and in speaking the words, they feel an almost physical difference.
4: Performing in original pronunciation, the people are moving faster, they're speaking faster, and they seem to be engaging with vowel sounds that generally bring out a different emotional quality. There's an engagement with a lower centre of gravity, partly from that change in the I sound, which becomes I, which moves from the throat down to the gut. Everybody feels rinsed by the end of it, both actors and audience alike, like they have been on some sort of wild emotional rollercoaster for the, for the two hours' traffic.
3: The insolence of office and the spurns that patient merit of unworthy takes when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin.
1: The idea of received pronunciation of a Queen's English would have been
3: completely alien back then. And in Shakespeare's time, there was no such thing the national trend towards a a standard pronunciation didn't come until the end of the 18th century.
1: The great open-air amphitheatres of Shakespeare's day had a more democratic spirit, compared with what was to come. It only cost a penny to get into the yard, and it's estimated that up to 20,000 people a week went to see a play in London, not far off one-tenth of the entire population of the city at the time. Delivering the to-be-or-not-to-be soliloquy, Ben Crystal found himself very moved by the profound thoughts which Shakespeare was offering to his fellow citizens.
4: When the actor, probably Burbage, was standing on that stage giving that speech to the audience, they were an audience who would have been fined if they didn't go to church. And to essentially step forward and ask them, what happens to us after death? What if there's nothing? That's hugely challenging and hugely generous. That expression of of humanity's questioning is is laced throughout from all oh, you host of heaven right the way through to the more eastern philosophies of, of falling of sparrows and letting be uh it seems that he covers a huge gamut of of, of thought and approach to our place in this earth our, our, our little time here it's um it's it's incredibly challenging and to, to, to be offering these huge, sparkling thoughts to, to the audience, that even if they were just there to be entertained, to know that they're leaving with, with huge thoughts that perhaps that they'd never entertained before.
1: When Hamlet stands on stage and delivers the speech, he's not just debating the afterlife, he's contemplating suicide, a forbidden sin, and he's thinking about the ethics of assassinating an unjust ruler, remarkably controversial topics for the time.
2: It is a provocative speech um, in terms of the ideas it's presenting to the audience.
1: Dr Sarah Dustergear.
2: The theatre is quite a powerful space um, and, and radical force in some ways. You would have a range of social classes coming together in one space, being encouraged to think as a community which is sort of interesting that sort of society where social divisions are so pronounced we're not connected by um, class we're not collected by family by work we're actually just a community who are connected by this cultural product we're consuming uh, and that that is very very powerful um, and it's the beginnings of the kind of the the public sphere, that idea that comes out later in the kind of coffee houses of the 18th century. It's it kind of sort of the seeds of it begin in Shakespeare's time. Professor
1: Sonia Masai says there was something fundamentally subversive about an ordinary man like Richard Burbage imitating a prince on stage.
5: The the Puritans, um, the anti-theatricalists, um, saw the theatre as a very dangerous um form of entertainment because the actors wore precious robes the costumes were coming straight from the court so they looked like the social superior the breach in the kind of social decorum um was perceived as a as as a threat to to the order to the social order and what's so radical about it is the suggestion that power relies on performance to manifest itself. They were seen as uh, positively subversive and quite radical and therefore quite dangerous.
1: A few decades after Shakespeare's death, the Puritans got their wish. All of the city's theatres, rabble-rousing, lewd and subversive, were pulled down during the civil wars. It was the end of the era of the giant outdoor amphitheatres. From then on, Ordinary people were to find themselves being pushed out of London's theatrical space. When Charles II regained the throne in 1660, he allowed theatres to restart on a limited scale, but all London theatres were indoors only. They were much smaller, and crucially, much more expensive than somewhere like the Globe. Professor Peter Holland.
6: What's happened is a change in the notion of popular. Effectively, the number of non-gentry present is comparatively small, and uh, they're uh, up in the upper balcony, Samuel Pepys, he's rather shocked that when he's buying a more expensive seat, once or twice he, he finds himself surrounded by apprentices and, and other kind of rather lower class people. And what are they doing in the middle gallery uh, of the theatre? Because that's surely the place where people like him should be. And then as he gets a bit more wealthy, he's, he's really in the stalls and that's where he wants to be. So we've got this sense of popular meaning, a moderately, moderate sense of high culture. And that's the model that we've inherited. That's how theatres now operate. Except, of course, for places like Shakespeare's Globe in London, where you can stand for, what is it at the moment, five pounds, six pounds, something like that. It's evident, in in spite of the greater social exclusivity, actually there was still quite a lot of rowdy
7: behaviour. Professor David Roberts. So we've got, you know, um, eyewitness accounts of sword fights breaking out. Um, of people, people chattering all the time. Uh, Sibber complains about a practice initiated by Christopher Rich when houses were getting a bit thin, whereby he let footmen in for free towards the end of the play, just to make sure that there was a good rowdy reception.
1: Only two companies were licensed to perform plays at all, and only one company, the Duke's Men, was given the right to perform Hamlet. Their leading actor was the rather unlikely-sounding Thomas Betterton.
7: He wasn't at all an obvious choice for a leading man. Um, If I read you a passage from a man called Anthony Aston, he says this, Mr Betterton, although a superlative good actor, laboured under ill figure, being clumsily made, having a great head, a short, thick neck stooped in the shoulders and had fat, short arms, which he rarely lifted higher than his stomach. So if you were, I think, to compare Betterton with any modern actor, I think you'd probably choose somebody like Simon Russell Beale, who who also has been an absolutely outstanding um, but unlikely Hamlet But the the thing evidently Betterton had was this extraordinary voice uh, and an extraordinary way with managing poetry in a way that seemed to his contemporaries um, completely natural.
1: Betterton became a huge star, and he had a virtual
7: monopoly on the role for years. There's a wonderful account of betterton's hamlet disappointingly in in your context not of to be or not to be but of the moment when hamlet first sees the ghost of his father he says this was the light into which betterton threw this scene which he opened with a pause of mute amazement then rising slowly to a solemn trembling voice he made the ghost equally terrible to the spectator as to himself Betterton was
1: still playing Hamlet at the end of his career, aged well over 70. We don't know how he spoke the soliloquy, but there may be clues in a fascinating document left by the noted diarist Samuel Pepys. Pepys saw Betterton play Hamlet a number of times, and loved him. He loved the speech too. He not only memorised it, he got his friend and composer Cesare Morelli to set it to music. there are some notable changes to the text we know right from the start. To be or not to be, that's the
8: question. To be or not to be, that's the question rather than that. It's it's, it's more forceful in a way.
1: This is Paul Willembrock. A singer and investigator of musical history. Along with musician Marco Horvat, he's created this version of Peep's setting.
8: Peep's—he loved making music. Wine, women, and song were really his passions. We can just sort of imagine Pepys sort of strutting around in his uh, his house, trying to reproduce what he had just heard. Betterton doings as Hamlet and asking Cesare Morelli to notate it. To die, to sleep, no He was just trying to, to recreate the way in which the actor would have been going up and down in his way of declaiming the, the speech. The way of performing was much more declamatory and, and almost like half sung. Or to take arms against a sea of trouble and by
0: Acting was very, very musical, and acting was uh, closer to dance.
1: Dr Jed Vence is a classical flautist and musical historian.
0: People were singing and they were using gestures um, when they they acted. Now if you say someone sang their Shakespeare, it's it's, it's to mock them. I think that that is doing an injustice to a lot of the repertoire. Jed has carried out
1: pioneering work on an extraordinary text. It's
0: a work by someone named Joshua Steele. Uh, called Prosodia Rationalis, which was published in 1779 in London. He uses a notation, which is based on musical notation, but he actually notates the soliloquy to be or not to be from Hamlet. He describes this as sort of the old-fashioned way to declaim, uh, which he considers to be somewhat of a rant. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the stings and arrows of outrageous fortune. He also gives us three versions of the same uh, line to show that it's not always done the same way to die to sleep no more but he gives another version which is to die to sleep no more so this is really, really fascinating that we would have some kind of notation from the 18th century is really quite extraordinary. You know, the, the idea that they were singing is, is incontrovertible, right? There are many, many sources. So I'm not basing the whole idea that there's this relationship between music and declamation solely on steel. Far, far from it. The thing is, and I'm going to make this very clear, is that steel is a wild eccentric, right? I mean, he's, a, he's completely eccentric. Despite it being wacky, <laughs> this text is really extraordinary. In the
1: 1730s, even tighter restrictions were placed on theatres, meaning you couldn't perform spoken drama at all without an official licence, which was extremely difficult to come by. But an extraordinary popular movement was to arise, which defied these restrictions and insisted on the right to play and perform Shakespeare. It was all sparked by David Garrick, an actor who came from Lichfield in Staffordshire.
6: Peter Holland. There is this this sense of uh, an astonishing moment of transition that Garrick starts performing in London and he's an immediate sensation. And it's as if the whole of the past has been wiped out, part of the tradition, but what was then seen as the way to perform, Garrick changes it. And what Garrick has above all is... Speed, and a lightness of touch and a realism. Garrick isn't one of those actors who depended on declaiming in a grand voice. Garrick's performances were emotionally moving. Nothing embarrassing about the men in the audience as well as the women in the audience having their handkerchiefs out and and floods of tears at the sight of Garrick.
1: Professor Leslie Ritchie.
9: The audience at the beginning of the Garrick period was still allowed onto the stage and between the wings in some cases. And Garrick pushed the audience out of those spaces and reclaimed that theatrical space for the actors and chastised his own actors when they paid too much attention to what was going on in the audience, um, bowing or Um, Acknowledging uh, applause at the end of a speech, for example, was something that he increasingly uh, frowned upon and asked his actors to abstain from. So there was a lot more emphasis on professionalism, um, an increased emphasis on rehearsal.
6: I think the most notorious bit about uh, Garrick's Hamlet, and it's a story that, that is told early and I hope is true, um, is that he had a special wig made to play Hamlet in. And the reason for the special wig was for the encounter with the ghost. And he could pull a little string and his hair literally stood on end. Uh, the wig rose so to exp- express Hamlet's horror-struck surprise at encountering his father's ghost. Um, it was supposed to have been made by a Mr. Perkins. I've always liked that idea of Mr. Perkins making a special wig for Hamlet.
1: We have a description of Garrick doing to be or not to be.
6: Hamlet appears with thick, loosened hair. One of his black stockings is halfway down his leg. He steps slowly forward in deep thought, supporting his chin with his right hand and the elbow of the right with the left. Taking his right hand away from his chin, but still holding it supported by the left, he utters the words, To be or not to be. Softly. But they are everywhere audible, on account of the great stillness.
1: The eccentric writer Joshua Steele says he saw Garrick perform Hamlet, and he gives us his notation of how he did it. Jed vents again.
0: To be, or not to be, that is the question. It is fascinating. And particularly given that that Garrick was famous for being more naturalistic in his acting, it does seem to indicate a move away from a more singing style into um, something a little more naturalistic.
6: I think it's pretty difficult to say what would happen if we could really hear Garrick now, but I suspect we would just think it was playing weird. Garrick would probably strike us as, as a bit sing-songy, but for his own audience, it didn't sound like that at all.
1: Dr Sonia Masai has written a fascinating book about the cultural struggle between the people and the elite, called Shakespeare's Accents, which uncovered a little-known story about Garrick.
5: One of the uh, great surprises for me along the way as I researched this book was to find out that um, David Garrick, one of the greatest Shakespearean actors of all time, was um haunted his entire life by reviewers and theatre critics who did not like his uh, Midlands accent. His critics found his style inappropriate and his voice, in particular, vulgar because Garrick was never able to shake off his native accent.
1: Although the Metropolitan critics sneered, Garrick became a popular
5: hero. His use of his native accent on the stage sparked an incredible movement. So apprentices up and down the country, they would gather in pubs and taverns after work and they would recite Shakespeare just for the sake of it, just for the sake of a feeling that Shakespeare poetry, uh, drama, should not be the preserve of the speech of elitism.
1: It was known as spouting. Professor Leslie Ritchie again.
9: Spouting is essentially dramatic karaoke. It was... Apprentices from the city uh, getting together after work around 9 or 10 p.m. at their favorite club, maybe the Birdcage in Wood Street or the Falcon in Fetter Lane. They would bring their hay penny and their spouting companion, which was a a list of the favorite speeches, and sit around with a pipe and drinks to hear their fellow apprentices. And we know that to be or not to be and angels and ministers of grace are the two speeches that spouters loved to take off. And they weren't afraid to laugh at themselves. So, um, for example, they had a spouter's soliloquy to spout or not to spouts the question now, whether it is better to adorn the brow with strains heroic or instead of brawling to stay at home and mind our proper calling. They had a passion for it. And I think it was an important outlet for apprentices in particular, because if you look at all of the uh, manuals about how apprentices ought to behave, what the appropriate behavior for an apprentice is, is, is silence. Silence about the mysteries of one's craft, obedience to one's master. Uh, In fact, masters could commit their apprentices to jail upon making an oath that they were idle and loose and disorderly. They could be committed to to brible for hard labor um, just on their on their master's oath. So the fact that these apprentices in their off hours were going out and indulging in Spouting and being tragic heroes, I think is, is rather um, a, a noble activity and a, is a, a kind of rebuttal uh, to that expectation that the good apprentice is a silent apprentice. They recited Shakespeare
5: in their own accent and uh, sometimes put up uh, improvised performances, but believe it or not, they were shut down by the police. I came across this wonderful anecdote of a production of Othello in the East End when the police turned up and marched the actors still wearing their costumes and a few members of the audience down to the local police station, because there was literally a legal ban over performing um, Shakespeare. Only a few companies, a handful of companies, were allowed to perform Shakespeare and spoken drama in England. Um, So the spouting clubs and the spouters um, represented a, 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 a veritable, social, quite political movement that aimed to broaden access to Shakespeare.
1: In the regions and the poorer parts of London, more and more companies exploited loopholes in the licensing legislation to put on plays including Shakespeare.
9: There were ways of advertising um, a concert of music, for example, with um, entertainment, dramatic entertainment between the acts. So that Samuel Foote, the comic, very famously invited people to come for a dish of tea or a a dish of chocolate uh, rather than the actual um, comic satiric entertainment, which was the real reason that people attended his, his entertainments.
5: The provincial Shakespeare, if we can call it that, um, defied um, the the, the ban. There was this obsession for reciting Shakespeare everywhere, up and down the country, in marketplaces, pubs, um, um, local halls, and the, the critics found that utterly abhorrent. They described them as roaring like bears or squealing like hogs. Or howling like mad dogs, or chattering like baboons and quacking like ducks, um, it's quite staggering for for us to hear this this um, level of abuse aimed at um, regional accents, because they firmly believe believe that Shakespeare uh, was the preserve of the of the cultural elite, and so the war was over who uh, owned Shakespeare, um, who was allowed to play it, um, who could access Shakespeare in the theatre. It actually led to the emergence of an acoustic norm that then banished regional accents from the stage of the so-called legitimate theatres. This kind of tension, who does Shakespeare belong to, has marked the, the history of the sound of Shakespeare's language, especially as performed, um, up to our own time, when uh, still there is a lot of gatekeeping around how Shakespeare is pronounced.
1: As we'll see in a future episode, the illegitimate theatres of the 18th century left a legacy which continues today. An almost 300-year history of women playing Hamlet on stage, an important symbol of the fight for female emancipation and equality And Hamlet's soliloquy, with its themes of taking action and personal and political freedom, was to become a rallying cry and an inspiration for popular grassroots movements from the Chartists and the Suffragettes to Malcolm X and the Arab Spring. This podcast was produced during the coronavirus lockdown and the contributors all agreed to take part because they wanted to raise awareness for theatres and for actors in a time of crisis, of pandemic of lockdowns and social distancing. If you want to help, theatres like The Globe have donation pages you can visit, and there are special fundraisers set up during lockdown, details of which can be found on the podcast website. Finally, special thanks go to Chris Dyer, Emma Fielding, and Simon Paisley-Day for the readings.
7: Soft you now, the fair Ophelia,
6: Nymph in thy orisons, be all my sins remembered.